In his book, Wishful Thinking, author and pastor Frederick Buechner translates biblical words into concrete, imaginative pictures that we can better understand and relate to. This is his entry for the word righteousness. You haven't got it right, says the exasperated piano teacher. Junior is holding his hands the way he's been told. His fingering is unexceptionable. He has memorized the piece perfectly. He has hit all the proper notes with deadly accuracy, but his heart's not in it, only his fingers. What he's playing is a sort of music, but nothing that will start voices singing or feet tapping. He has succeeded in boring everyone to death, including himself. Jesus said to his disciples, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were playing it by the book. They didn't slip up on a single do or don't, but they were getting it all wrong. Righteousness is getting it all right. If you play it the way it's supposed to be played, there shouldn't be a still foot in the house. Who of us doesn't want to be in the right? Whether it is accuracy of information, being on the winning side of an argument, or making an important decision, we want to be right. We want to get it right. The stuff of religion is about getting it right with God, being accepted by God, winning God's favor, securing God's approval. This is a central theme of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount understanding how to live in right relationship with God and with one another. Whereas religious leaders in the first century thought getting it right was a matter of dutiful adherence to God's law and legalistic separation from anything that might compromise its observance, Jesus said such an approach is a dead end. The path is wrong because it relies solely on one's own ability and effort. Thus far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has addressed his listeners as the subject of his message. You are blessed. You are salt. You are light. What may have sounded like statements of disbelief were made accessible and believable because Jesus proclaimed them in conjunction with the arrival of God's kingdom. People who are poor are blessed to experience the abundance of God's gifts. People who mourn are comforted with God's compassionate care. People who offer mercy are granted all they need and more. People who are salty give the world a taste of God's love. And people who reflect God's light show the way of salvation and wholeness. In today's passage, Jesus makes himself the subject and then startles his listeners with a most challenging statement. Let us hear this portion of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, as read for us by Mary Rogers. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Hear these words spoken by Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. The life work of a scribe was to teach and interpret the law. The role of a Pharisee was to see that that law was followed. A scribe might be likened to our superior court judge or a law professor, and a Pharisee would be like a religious version of an officer of the law or peace. When it came to defining and meeting the demands of righteousness, these two groups of people were the professionals, and the distance between them and everyone else was ginormous. Such a comparison would be like telling someone who lives below the poverty line in a neighborhood where fast food chains are readily available and affordable, that they're to stop eating processed foods and instead buy organic vegetables and fruit and fresh fish from Whole Foods. Even if the person wants to change their eating habits, their eating habits, the cost of doing so would be prohibitive. When Jesus' listeners heard him say, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, they must have thought that's just not possible. The key to understanding the sermon as a whole is to hear it as the good news of God's kingdom, the rule and blessings of God offered through the one who proclaims it. Jesus came to do the will of God and to announce the presence of God's redemptive reign in history. His life and ministry establishes a new relationship between God and his people. And this relationship enables his followers to live according to God's will. Biblical scholar Robert Gulick points out that it is not simply the law that Jesus fulfills, but the law and the prophets. Israel's whole story, its commands, promises, and all, was coming true in Jesus. Promises spoken by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, where the eschatological dimension, that inbreaking from the future into the present, that, that dimension of the law was in keeping with God's redemptive acts for his people. Jeremiah, in, 30, in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, says that God promised to write the law upon one's heart as part of the new covenant. And in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, God promises a new heart and a new spirit that will enable people to walk obediently according to God's statutes and ordinances. Rather than referring to the sum of legal commandments and prohibitions which the Pharisees sought to fulfill and thought necessary 
for the, as a prelude for the coming of God's kingdom, Jesus speaks of the law in keeping with the prophetic promise of the coming of God's kingdom in the age of salvation. By bringing this eschatological dimension of the law as a dynamic expression of God's will in the context of the age of salvation, he's able to bring about its ultimate completion. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. This explanation helps us understand then how Jesus can say he came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it, despite having been accused repeatedly by Pharisees of breaking the Sabbath and of failing to, to live according to the ceremonial stipulations for cleanliness. By contrast, we know why Jesus rejected those who considered themselves righteous, whose very concern for the law had itself blinded them to see God's redemptive actions being accomplished on their behalf. The religious leaders failed to recognize that Jesus was opening up for God's people and through them to all the world a new way for God's covenant to be realized by changing behavior, not just by teaching, but by a change of heart and mind, a transformation of heart and mind. The scribes and Pharisees thought that keeping the law made one righteous and was the prerequisite for entering God's kingdom. They were so focused on the demand for righteousness that they missed the gift of righteousness Jesus offered. This is why Jesus said to his listeners that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He wanted people to hear these words, not as a threat of being excluded from the kingdom, but as an invitation to have faith in him, not as a form of merit or earning the right to enter, but as a gift to be received. The new relationship with God that Jesus' ministry brought is one of grace. To the sick and sinners, Jesus offers the blessings of God's healing and forgiveness. Acceptance with God does not come through obedience of the law, but through faith in Christ. When our son Mark was in elementary school, he played soccer in a YMCA league. Since there were so few coaches to support the number of kids who wanted to play, I volunteered to be the team coach. My only qualification was having played soccer recreationally. Despite my limitations as coach, our team was pretty good and we competed for the title. I recall one particular play in a game that changed the focus from my role as coach to realizing the importance of my role as a father. Mark was moving down the left side of the field with the ball and just at the right moment, he kicked a pass into the center where his teammate lunged toward the ball head first and deflected in, into the net for a goal. It was a sensational play and a moment to celebrate as a team. I scanned the field to where Mark was, but when our eyes met, what I saw wasn't exuberance and joy, but a yearning for approval. As if Mark were asking me, 
Did I get it right, Dad? Was that good enough to make you proud of me? I cheered for the team outwardly, but inwardly I resolved not to leave the field that day until I had a father-son talk. I told Mark he didn't need to win my approval. He already had it. And I said, I'm sorry for all the ways I've given you an impression you had to earn it. I want you to know that I'm proud to be your father. Whether you make a goal or make a past, it doesn't matter. Simply watching you do anything fills up my heart. You don't have to prove anything to me. I love you for who you are and always will. I recognized that look on Mark's face because I too, as a son, had worked at trying to prove my worth to my own father. Like the elder brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, many of us spend a lifetime trying to win the approval and favor of someone important to us. But at the same time, our sense of duty and obligation to meet such demands can actually get in the way of our experiencing the love and acceptance that might be offered to us. The elder brother's choice to be faithful caused him to think the father owed him something in return. He felt a sense of entitlement based on his own efforts and attainments, and he left no room to appreciate or value his father's character, nor receive his father's love and grace when it was offered. Like the scribes and Pharisees, the elder brother was so preoccupied with the demands of righteousness that he failed to hear the announcement of the gift of it. And it is this reception of God's righteousness, not our own as a gift, that becomes the means of our ability to ultimately do God's will. Followers of Jesus in Matthew's day, just as followers of Jesus today, may have may think that because Jesus fulfilled the law, we don't have to. As if Jesus satisfied the requirements of the law so that we are free from its demands. Not so. If anything, we are about to see in the next few sections of Jesus' sermon that the sense of the law is even more, his sense of the law is even more challenging than what the scribes articulated. The difference between them is whether the law is seen as obligatory to secure a right standing with God, or if such a standing with God has already been granted, and thus doing of God's will flows out of that relationship. In other words, the follower of Jesus doesn't have to do the law. She or he gets to do the law and is actually empowered to do it. This passage serves as a gateway to all that follows. Most of the rest of the sermon delineates what exactly this means with examples of how to love our neighbor as ourselves and how to love God faithfully and authentically. The kind of righteous practice Jesus speaks of is deeper and more a matter of the heart. It is not about external observance to the law or rigid conformity to it, but a far more radical way of doing what is right in relationship. 
When I officiate a wedding ceremony, I don't have to command a bride or groom to live according to their vows, to tell them they are obligated to love one another, to honor one another and cherish each other. They already want to do that, and they can hardly think of doing otherwise. It is a natural expression of their commitment. They don't think of it as a demand, but as a privilege and a gift. The same could be said of the ethical quality of righteousness. For its demand to be met, the gift of a right relationship with God must first be realized. Then right living follows. We don't have to do what pleases God. We get to. Sometimes the choices we must take, we must make, take courage. I was reminded of this in the recent email from Sherry and Dusty Ellington. An email informing our church that they have sensed God calling them to transition from Zambia, where they have served 12 years in a safe and productive mission setting, to move to Lebanon, where life is difficult, precarious, and challenging. They will continue to train pastors and church leaders but no longer for a church that is growing and thriving and doing so in English, but speaking in Arabic to a church that is struggling and in decline. The Ellingtons inspire me with their brave and courageous hearts and their sensitivity to God's leading. They exemplify what it means to be obedient and missional, ready and willing to go where God sends them. The piano student illustrates how we don't get it right by hitting the notes with deadly accuracy, but by making music that comes from within. That is the story and life work of Midori Gatto. A virtuoso violinist, Midori was among the 2020 class of Kennedy Center honorees. Born in Japan, she was raised in New York mostly by her violinist mother and at an early age considered to be a prodigy. She began playing the violin at age three and as a child was featured with famous orchestras, including the New York Philharmonic at age 11. She has become one of the finest musicians in the world. She also devotes much of her time as a music teacher. More than her music performance, she wants her role in music education to be her lasting legacy. Her Midori and Friends Foundation brings music education to underserved communities nationally, and through music sharing, she does the same internationally. I mention her because of what she says about music. I think it resonates with what Jesus says about righteousness. Midori says, I think of music as something that lives inside all of us. We have an instrument that is an agent for us to bring up what's inside us. It's not about talent. It's what we think, what we feel. It's what we experience. It's how we register the world. My instrument happens to be the violin. Midori's success was tempered by pressure and personal struggles, including overcoming an eating disorder. She disclosed, I needed help. 
that also is a part of me. I don't believe that when we play music that we can just be sharing a part of our lives. Music is something that is truthful. It's you as a whole, not as a part. Once we experience God's grace as the gift of being made right in relationship with God, we begin to choose right living in everything we do, the whole of us. It becomes like an instrument or agency of expressing what is true about us, what we think, what we feel, and how we relate to others and to the world. When we get it right, it's like music that makes the heart sing. May we be in tune with its rhythm and its melody. And may its music bring glory to God. Amen.